Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Stunt Show here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am Daniel Gordon, son, husband, and one quarter of the amazing Stunt Show team here on the Nachum Siegel Network. You can find the Stunt Show here every Thursday at 6 p.m. As part of this amazing team, one quarter of the time you can find me as I hope to bring you a small taste of the amazing life God has blessed me with, the inspiration I draw from the always entertaining world of sports, and of course, country music. Coming to you from the Nachum Siegel Studios on what my parents tell me is the historic Lower East Side, and I'm joined by my friend Avrami. Avrami, how are you? Thank God, doing well. I just came back from your hometown of Baltimore, Maryland, where I was for the Jewish Federations of North America's General Assembly. And you didn't even call. I did not call. I was too busy thinking about how great the city was. All right, I, well, I'll give you my number after, and you can next time you're in town, you know. Well, that will just make me have to call you, and I won't feel, and I'll feel guilty. I will tell you, Camden Yards is beautiful, and the Inner Harbor. Gorgeous. We went to the uh, aquarium. Yeah, I haven't been there in a long time because it's a little bit pricey with the kids and everything, but it is really nice. It's like I think that's the National Aquarium. Next time I come, I'm taking you to the Inner Harbor. Sounds good. So, if during or after the show you realize that you'd like more Daniel Gordon, please email me at daniel at nachamsegel.com. Seriously, your honest feedback and comments about the show are welcomed and appreciated, and I hope that this show will gain its inspiration and contact from you, the listeners. Each month, I hope to cover material from the inspiration world of sports, my one-of-a-kind life and perspective, and the deep genre of country music. This month's show is going to focus on Megastorm Sandy, sports, and my reflections on how they all come together. The benefit of doing a monthly show is that so much happens in a month. I'm going to play a clip for you. Chuck Pagano is, the, uh, is a first-year football head coach in the NFL for the Indianapolis Colts, who just began a second round of chemotherapy last week as he battles leukemia. Last week on November 4th, he attended his first game since leaving the team in early October, and he came to arm with two speeches. Before the game, Pagano told the, coach, the Colts, who at the time were 4-3, and three, that they were living a vision after many projected them to be the worst team in the NFL this season. Afterward, Pagano talked of his vision for himself and for all of us. I hope you will listen carefully. We got those players fired up. I mentioned before the game that you guys were living in a vision and you weren't living in circumstances. Because you know where they had us in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Every last one of them. But you refused to live in circumstances and you decided consciously as a team and as a family to live in a vision. Yes, sir. And that's why you bring things home like you brought home today. That's why you're already champions and well on your way. I got circumstances. You guys understand it. I understand it. It's already beat. That I'm living. See, two more daughters get married, dance at their weddings, and then hoist that Lombardi several times. Several times we're going to hoist that baby. I'm dancing at two more weddings, and we're hoisting that trophy together. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So if you pick up on that, at the end of the speech, the team cheers one, two, three. Chuck. 
So what was Coach Pagano saying? I think Coach Pagano was saying that we all live in circumstances. We're all victims of circumstances, and we all have the opportunity to own our circumstances. Megastorm Sandy was certainly one of those circumstances. But to me, it's all about how we deal with them. Chuck Pagano's circumstance is certainly worse than mine. Thank God, um, although I was stuck in Memphis, Tennessee during the storm, my family was okay. And I certainly hope and pray that Chuck Pagano's circumstances is worse than most of yours. But I hope that we are all inspired. In addition to the obvious pain, suffering, and overall terror caused by the superstorm, what struck me about it and about the last few weeks was the role that sports played and often plays in these times. Uh, personally, I remember after 9-11 when the New York Jets came back. So my family, as I've said, are season ticket jet holders. And uh, as painful as the Jets are sometimes, the game after 9-11 was unbelievable. Although some people wouldn't come because they were afraid of the security risks or anything like that, people came together. And I vividly remember during the national anthem of that game, everyone was arm in arm, tears in their eyes, and it didn't matter. I don't remember who the Jets were playing. It didn't matter who they played. And frankly, it didn't matter who you were cheering for. Because in that moment, everyone came together. And sports has the opportunity to do that. And I think Superstorm Sandy was no different. Obviously, some of the decisions were political. We'll get into those in a bit. But when the Knicks opened up against the Heat, you had athletes who donated their, their game checks of over $200,000 to charity. And frankly, it gave people a way out. I remember watching the Giant game that week, and the Giants were at home, and people were holding signs that said, no heat, no water, but we're here for the Giants. And yeah, it seems superficial, but in the end of the day, we can make these opportunities that sometimes may be disappointing, and we can make them into something special. So this leads me to our guest today. My guest is Mr. David J. Brott. David Brod is the co-founder, VP, and CRO, Chief Root Officer of Neuro Runners. Neuro Runners is a local running club based in southern Westchester, New York, with approximately 200 runners of varying levels of experience and experience from all over southern Westchester, including New Rochelle, if you'll remember, that's my wife's hometown, Scarsdale, Larchmont, Mamaroneck, Bronxville, Rye, White Plains, Eastchester, and Yonkers. The club runs together every Saturday and Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on different routes in southern Westchester, published in their weekly newsletter, as well as once a week for, an evening, for evening track work. New Row Runners' mission is to bring together runners of all ages and abilities to promote a healthy community, camaraderie, and to encourage and support all runners no matter what level of experience. New Row Runners provides a fun and healthy environment to run in, will challenge even the most experienced runner, and will help those new to running get into a routine with the support of a fun group of runners of similar levels. New Row Runners is a member of Roadrunners Club of America, and it is a registered 501c3 tax-exempt nonprofit organization. Its motto is, quote, Changing the shape of community one mile at a time. To find out more or to join the club, go to www.newrowrunners.org or send an email to info at newrowrunners.org. So David, David's interest in running started back when he was in high school and college where he ran recreationally and competed in local events. His interest in running was reborn after a 15-year hiatus when he and his wife, Dina, decided to move to the suburbs. Don't know why you did that. Became, and became <laughs> parents to Evan, Danielle, and Cooper, a five-year-old Puggle. In June of 2009, a friend inquired if he would like to run a half marathon. After not running for more than 15 years, David thought for a second and said yes. This led him back to daily training and a racing regimen in the local New York area. David's love in his middle distance and half marathons, where he regularly placed in the top 10 in his age group. And in 2001, he ran his first marathon, the New York City Marathon, and is still recovering, although we'll discuss that soon. And most... <laughs> I would say most importantly, to support his running habit, David actually has to work during the day, and he's founding member of the J Companies, a New York City-based construction management and real estate firm. Uh, welcome, David, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I would also like, before I forget, 
um, to thank my cousin, Samantha Lacher Lieberson, who, along with her husband, are part of the Runners Club. She actually has inspired me to run um, a little bit. I went on a crazy diet this summer where I lost 15 pounds in two weeks. That's a story for another time. So I was running for a two-week period, but then I gave up on it. Two weeks and that was it. You were done. Yeah, Riverdale's a little hard to run in. Once my wife and I moved to Westchester, which is inevitable. It's inevitable that I will move to Westchester. I married a New Rochelle girl. When I signed on the dotted line in my marriage certificate, I knew that eventually I would end up in New Rochelle. And when you move to Westchester, you'll be a better runner because you didn't like running in Riverdale because of the hills? That and like it was dark at night and running on the street is not always fun. I was doing it by myself. I was like listening to, you know, Eye of the Tiger. It was great. I I did it for two weeks, but running with a group is certainly something that I welcome. Here's here's the good marketing stick. So when you come to Westchester, you join newer runners. And every weekend, we have 30 or 40 people running the streets of Lower Westchester. Every morning at 5 a.m., if you want to venture over to New Rochelle, you come over and you're, (laughs) that's funny. You're, and you run with people. It's way easier to run with people than it is by yourself. And why do you think the running with people adds to the whole thing? You talk. I mean, quite honestly, you sit there. First of all, getting up in the middle of the winter, there, there are a bunch of reasons. But when you want to train through the winter and it's 10 degrees outside and it's dark outside, if you know there are people waiting for you at a street corner somewhere, you're more prone to get up than just sit there and you'll just turn the alarm off. You'll just turn over and say, I'll do it another time. Besides that, it's the camaraderie. It's not just, we all run for different reasons. Some run just for health, some run to train, some run for races, some run to, to, to get better and better. Some people just run for the camaraderie. So you go out there, and like I said, the, the average group is between 20 and 30 people every Saturday and Sunday morning. Um, there's always something to talk about. There's always somebody new to talk to. So I think that's, I think that's what I was getting to a little bit in the intro, was sports has that thing about it that brings camaraderie, I think, unlike anything else. You can go to a bar and you can find people to talk to, but there's something about sports. Um, and you know, we, we were talking before we got on the air about even sometimes people on different teams so when something happens, people are together and you still shake hands at the end, no matter how heated it is. But obviously when you're on the same team and you're all moving towards a common goal, that certainly helps. But would it, it, you find that in running races as well. You sit in a corral and, in, and in, if you're in a competitive corral and you are absolutely locking eyes with somebody else that you know is in your age group, you've seen them at other races and that you want to beat. But the national anthem anthems being played, or for New York Roadrunners events, there is a there's a, usually a cause or or a, or a charity that you're running for that weekend. You're lockstep with them at that moment until you cross the start line, and and, and after you cross the finish line, you're lockstep again. You're lockstep again, and even in the middle of the race, you will use each other to help pace you through the race. Doesn't mean that in the last hundred yards you're not going to try to beat that guy, but you're lockstep with each. It's 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 the camaraderie of sports. That's amazing. And do you find um, that? living in suburbia plays into that camaraderie because I know I grew up on the upper side of Manhattan and one of the things that, that we always spoke about growing up was that people live in Manhattan to be anonymous. They live in Manhattan to go to the supermarket and not see their friends. So one of the things that I've always wanted to live in suburbia for, granted I love not worrying about the boiler and the heater and all those things when you have a super storm or anything else. I wish I was in a rental again. Yeah, certainly, mm-hmm. certainly that's what a lot of people say but the, but the question is the suburbia in general bring a sense of camaraderie among people and among neighbors because it truly is a neighborhood and not just a bunch of people living in buildings. It brings a very different sense of community. I grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in Flatbush. Um, Everything started in Brooklyn. That's what my father tells me. Wherever you travel around the world, I'll digress, no matter where you go, no matter what airport you're in, no matter what sports team you're talking to at some bar, at some airport somewhere, somebody has a relationship back to Brooklyn. And and, 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 and we're going to go back, but I will just say one thing. What's amazing about people from Brooklyn, I don't know if anybody's ever noticed this, when you ask somebody where they're from, so if you ask somebody from any other place, they'll say Kansas, Kentucky, they'll even say New York. 
But if you're from, so like if you're from Manhattan, you say New York. If you're from Westchester, you say New York. And then they say what part. But if you ever ask somebody, and they could be any race, color, and creed, any <laughs> age, you say, where are you from? And they say, Brooklyn. They don't say New York. They say Brooklyn. I married a Queens girl. She says she's from New York. I say I'm from Brooklyn. That's it, 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 it. You may as well be from like the other side <laughs> of the world because it's like its own culture and everything good starts in Brooklyn. That's but it. anyway, back to suburbia. So um, very different growing up in in Brooklyn and and where my what my kids have experienced now in New Rochelle. And while we had a, I grew up in in Flatbush, um, right off of Coney Island Avenue, and there was a sense of community there. And you had a community over at over at the Shul, and you had a community at school, but it wasn't the same feeling of neighborhood community as you do in New Rochelle. I mean, I'm just giving New Rochelle. I, I can assure you it's the same thing from, from- New Rochelle is the greatest suburb ever. I have, absolutely. I, I, I hope my in-laws listen to my show every single week. So they're listening there from New Rochelle. Good job. Um, and certainly next time I go visit, I would love to visit you okay. um, back at home. So you said that you chose to raise um, your children in suburbia. Uh, so you have two children and a dog? I have two children and a dog. I have Evan, who's 19. He's a sophomore at the University of Texas in Austin. I have Danielle, who's a senior at New Rochelle High School, and she just applied to eight or nine schools. She's done. Now she just has to wait. New Rochelle High School, the home of Ray Rice. Very good. The star of my fantasy team. How great is he? DeMarco Murray gets injured. He almost tanks everything, and then Ray Rice comes back, and he's like the the, the, the man in New Rochelle. Could be the best football player Westchester's ever produced. Who Not else? just New Rochelle. Who else is there? I have no clue. There it goes. <laughs> so, so Ray Rice, if you are out there listening to us, which may, you never know, we are big fans. Um, so what? So I read. So we read that you got into running after being the hiatus. So what? What was it really? It was just some somebody came out of the. Is you know, that really how it happened. Combination of a couple of things. Like I said, a fifteen year hiatus, not doing daily exercise. I had stopped playing basketball, um, suburbia work, travel, the whole thing. And then um, I had started thinking I got to start doing something. We were at a dinner in New York. With a whole bunch of friends, June 2009, a friend looked at me and just like said, I'm doing a, uh, a trail half marathon in October. Do you want to do it with me? I'm like an idiot. I said, yeah, sure. Okay, no problem. And I started training the next morning, but it gave me something to train for. It ends up I didn't do that trail half marathon because I'm scared of the trails. Um, and I ran a, the Westchester half that October. And you completed the New York marathon in 2011? Barely. Barely, but you did. <laughs> All that matters is that you did. Um, I actually remember I we we had a family friend who lived who now lives in Maryland who used right. to run the marathon, and I would always marvel in the pain and suffering that even the most trained people suffer after running a marathon, then they still do it the next year. I was trained well. There is nothing that can prepare you for the twenty six miles. There is nothing that can you you do a bunch of twenty mile runs or twenty two mile runs. You train for eighteen weeks. You log in fifty sixty miles a week, and the mental aspect of Running 26 miles, the pain that you do endure somewhere over that time, and I cramped up at 13 miles, um, and getting through that pain is, is something you're just not prepared for until you do it. So what gets you through? The camaraderie? The finish, but both the, the, the group kind of being with you? If, do you think you could run 26 miles by yourself in the middle of a desert? I, no, not in the middle of a desert. I can run 26 miles by myself running past 4 million people in New York City. It was the most amazing experience of my life. So. And that's the only reason I want to go back and do a marathon. I, have, I am not. There, there are a bunch of people in our group that want to do marathon after marathon after marathon. We've had, we have somebody in our group that has run a marathon a month. I don't want to do it. I, I don't want to state the wrong fact. I don't, I, Tom, I think, has done 40 months in a row of a marathon a month. We have a bunch of marathon maniacs doing three in three months just to get on that list. I did my one. I want to do one more just so I don't. I want to see what it's like not to cramp up in the middle of a marathon. 
but it is it is a mentally grueling thing to do. So Not think, just feel physically grueling. So I think that brings me to why um, we got in touch because I was looking for somebody who, who was supposed to run this marathon. Right. Um, and I, I think it's amazing that, um, I guess you can tell us the story, but um, politics aside, you were supposed to run that, that, that life goal of a second marathon just a few weeks ago. I was supposed to. I actually deferred about six weeks prior because I have an Achilles heel problem. But we had about 35 people in our group signed up to do the marathon. And I kept training with them. There was a lot of, here's the camaraderie, push each one of those human beings pushing the other human being towards the goal of crossing the finish line after 26.2. Um, and as soon as the storm happened and NYRR started floating the idea out of not having the race or having the race, there were opinions on both sides of the aisle. And it was some pretty heated arguments. At the end of the day, I'm personally, I'm glad I wasn't training for the race anymore because my mind would have been mush. Um, waking up in the mornings to wait on gas lines, not really sleeping well, not eating the right way, to, to think I would have raced that weekend would have, would have killed me. So did you guys do anything instead of running the marathon? Um, right before Shabbos dinner, the Friday night before the marathon, they, they, they canceled the race that Friday afternoon. Um, I was having Shabbos dinner with Steve Stein, the president of Neuro, and a couple of other people, including Mark Meaden, um, who's on the board, and we looked at each other and said, well, we got to get do something special on Sunday for the 35 people that did not run. Uh, we sent a quick email out and just said, we're going to run uh, 26 miles if you want to. There's a six-mile loop in New Rochelle on Pinebrook Boulevard. We're just going to run that loop as many times as you want. For people that want to do the marathon, run it four and a half times. Um, and also bring 20 bucks with you. We'll throw it into a hat and we'll vote on a charity to donate it to. 80-something people showed up. Uh, some people weren't even runners. Some people walk walkers. Some people with dogs. Um, we raised $2,710. We had, I think, close to 40 people start out of the parking lot out of Albert Leonard School to run Pinebrook Boulevard. And we had five people complete marathons on Pinebrook Boulevard. That's it. I mean, that's, to me, the amazing thing. And, and watching it, having not trained, I, I understand that, that, that people worked very hard for it, but watching it, and again, politics aside, it's one of these things where almost all of the fun and all of the meaning of sports was taken out of it. Whether the decision was right or not to cancel, once there was all that debate, it was almost like, what are we doing this for? What is the, what, what is the greater purpose? What is, you know, there's, there's so much going on in the world right now that how could we almost do this? And, and even once the debate came, it was, that took away, I'm sure, for the people who thought they were going to run until Friday, like you said, it kind of took away from the whole excitement around the race, I assume. It took away from the excitement, and, and I will tell you, I, I vacillated back and forth. And, and my, my opinion before last Saturday, Sunday, and I'll explain what happened, was that once they said that they were going to do the race the Tuesday, the day after the, uh, the storm came through, I felt they should have gone through and, and completed the race. They had told people they were going to race, people in final preparations, people were traveling, people spent money. There were vendors that set up in, in Javits Center that depend on this for their livelihood and to pay their mortgage and to feed their kids. And I think it was in bad form to actually cancel it on Friday. I'm not saying it should have been canceled in the first place, but I, I was... And I was a proponent of, of keeping the race on, and I was being yelled at on that Friday night by, by a number of people. I got to go out to Rockaway this past weekend um, and volunteered in a UJA JASA-owned building, a, a series of buildings, five buildings up to 20 stories where there were homebound seniors that were trapped upstairs, and we were 
shuttling up food and water and blankets and batteries, whatever else they needed, and the conditions were horrible. Um, nobody was really helping them. I think the day that we showed up, the National Guard finally showed up, and they were ferrying water up. And then we drove from Beach 20th about down to Beach 144th Street. And I'm not sure if you're, you're familiar with Rockaway, but it's basically a seven-mile stretch. And my parents used to live on Beach 144th Street. To see with your own eyes what's happened, to experience it and to smell it and to feel it because the dirt is just in the air out there, I got it. I got that we probably should not have run the race. So I went a week ago, um, and, and that that's a point well taken. I think I... I agree with you that once they did it on Tuesday, I mean, there was there was a lot at stake, the financial issues, both for the individuals, also for the city. It's a big moneymaker for the city. $300 million plus. But, but I don't understand how after the devastation, it was even a thought. You know, people making the decision saw the destruction. I, I, I went out on Thursday, so it was, a little, it was a little while after the storm already. Right. But to see even people at that point, the lawns, it looked like a yard sale. The cars in the driveways that just won't, and that's not even getting inside people's homes to see what's going on. The cars, the the, the hundreds of cars that are dead because of the water, um, you know, the the, the salt water, and, the, and then you just open, you turn on your cell phone, and you're sending a text. You call your friend, and you hear this one told me that the house down the block blew up because of an electrical fire. This one who from work tells me, you know, I, I went to see their home, and their home was destroyed on the basement, including all kinds of of of, of both valuable things, but maybe more important than that, sentimentally valuable things. Sure. And then you say it kind of took the meaning out of the sports when you do that. It overshadowed it. It, it, um, and I, I guess, and again, we keep saying not to be political, but I'm assuming that Bloomberg wanted the race to go on to be this galvanizing event that it probably would have been to a certain extent, uh, probably with the shadow hanging over, probably with some downside, but it probably would have done the job that he thought it was going to do. But there was so much that he had to, so many hurdles he had to get to get to that start line that it was not worth, it wasn't worth the argument anymore. And to me, that's where I, a, a lot of the New York sports talk shows were talking about the equation between all of the sporting events. So there was the marathon, there was the net game against the Knicks that was ultimately canceled. There was the Knicks game that happened right. on Friday night where they beat the Heat. And then there was the Giant game on Sunday in Jersey, which a lot of Jersey didn't have power. And people would have to get to the stadium. There was talk they should have moved it to Philadelphia. To me, though, the marathon was a different beast because of the way, first of all, it went directly into some of the communities that were affected, which can be looked at as both good and bad, but also right. the amount of city resources that are taken to put on a 26-mile race that goes across all five boroughs kind of... Uh, it may detract from, from helping the people that were affected. I don't know. You know. Bloomberg kept saying it wasn't going to take any resources away. You know, Take that at face value. He's the mayor for a reason, I guess. I but, guess uh, so. So is there, um, are there plans for you guys to run another marathon instead, or are you just looking forward to 2012? Again, interesting. 2013, so, I'm sorry. Um, so of the 35 people that were going to run, I told you five people ran it that day. I think we um, have 20 people in Philadelphia this weekend, and I've, I think originally we only had about four or five that were going to run Philadelphia, and so a whole bunch of people quickly signed up for Philadelphia. Philadelphia opened up a bunch of slots. I think they opened up 3,000 slots just for New York City Marathon refugees. Um, I know there are a couple people going down south. They're just looking for a place to run a marathon. And I would assume next year we'll, we'll go through the same thing. We'll have another 30, 35 people looking to run the marathon. You won't have me. You may not have me either. I don't know if I can go through another summer of, of, uh, of training. Well, I wish you certainly the best of luck with that. Do any of your, Does any of your family run? 
absolutely no one. Absolutely. Good. Okay. So, so, am, you're, so you carry the flag. I am all alone. My wife just waves at me when I leave in the morning and says, you know, take a shower when I walk back in the door. That's that, my support. That's good. Well, well, the team is. And, and, and then, of course, there's the team that provides that. It's a family. It, and not to, uh, it's a cliche, you know, when you say you have another family, but there is a running family out there. You support each other to such a large degree, mentally, physically. Um, you, you lean on people when you're injured. You lean on people when you can't run another mile or you're really tired or something's hurting. And you look at somebody and they can pace you for that last mile. So I will say that during my, my two weeks of, of crazy uh, dieting and crazy running, um, I was doing things that most people probably shouldn't do. Like the first day I went out, I ran four miles just because I was on this mission to, to, to prove everybody wrong that I could lose the weight. But I had an app on my phone. And what the app allows you to do is actually join sort of a virtual running community because I was able to join with friends of mine. Um, one of them was my boss, another person. And I was able to join with them and, and see their paces, right. see my pace and push myself to say that even though they're not next to me, first of all, I'm going to, both be proud of myself but i know that they're going to call me and they're going to say how'd it go and and where's it going at and there's something i, I mean i mean I, I know i'm being repetitive on this specific topic but the camaraderie the it's good it's bad it's it's when somebody gets injured i mean i know that on one of the shows um on the network i don't know if you heard the story there was a story about a young man on the on the um on the show on miriam Wall, on miriam l wallach show that's life she interviewed a guy a, a young boy named seth goldstein Seth Goldstein, I don't know if it's an amazing story. I'll tell it quickly in two minutes that Seth Goldstein is a student in the Cooper Yeshiva High School in Memphis and where I actually was stuck for the hurricane, so I met him. And um, he was running in a cross-country race. And there he was running, and he's in the middle of his competition. All of a sudden, the kid next to him falls to the ground. And he stops running, turns around, sees that the kid is blue in the face, and he's not breathing. Oh, yeah. So Seth does CPR, and he ends up you know, jumping in like like an adult, and here's this 17-year-old kid. Right. So I went over to Seth in Memphis, and I said, you know, you should be proud. He had won the game in the basketball tournament that I was there for, but I said, you should be most proud of just the kind of person you are that you can do that. And he said, there wasn't even a question. Right. So even in the competition, in this kid who, who trained, you know, obviously this was an extreme circumstance, and I hope anybody who saw somebody suffering at that point, but, you know, you have all the time, you have people who carry people across the finish line teammates you know and, and and competitors alike you don't get that in other sports you, you, there is a sense again you i'm going to use the word again when you camaraderie um it's your brother and sister running alongside with you you take care of them and i mean in in other sports i think i mean we were both talking about our passion for the jets which is unfortunate Very. um in football but even even you see in football and i mentioned to this uh, i'm going to mention this earlier in football you see like they're literally hitting each other as hard as they can and yet when God forbid something bad happens, everyone prays to whoever the God is that they pray to, and everyone gets down on their knees, and everyone, and then they go back to hitting each other. But there's that moment, there's that family that only they can relate to, only those football players can relate to, only those runners can, only those basketball players can. And to me, sports was always an outlet growing up, which is why I'm still involved. I I I coach a high school basketball team. Um, I have a game tonight. I'm going from here straight to the holy city of Brooklyn. Um, I should say the holy, I don't know, it's more than a city, the holy place known as Brooklyn, but but because it's so important, and it's so important that our kids are involved in it, it's so important that we're involved in it as we get older. The competition that the competition is a good thing. You, you were hitting on it before. Um, there's so much you learn from competition that's good. There is some bad side to competition, but there's so much good that comes out of competing against 
other people, other teams, or your inner self, which is a lot about what, what running's about, competing against yourself. I think if you keep the competition healthy, and if you keep losing healthy, the, the, the unfortunate thing about competition is that somebody's a winner and somebody's a loser. It's a good thing. But in the end of the day, if you use that Correct. as a positive thing, just like, I mean, I think just like Chuck, just like Coach Chuck Pagano was saying, if you use all the negatives in your life, and obviously losing a race is obviously a lot different than some of the worst circumstances that people are under. Right. Um, but if you use sports, you use the race, you use every single thing as an opportunity to grow and to push yourself and to grow as a person, as an athlete, yes, but also as a person, then, 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 then everything has its value and its worth. I've seen it in running. I've seen Achilles runners, handicapped runners, running alongside me, running the same race, on the same road as me, doing their thing, and that inspires me. One of my goals is to do Tough Mudder. Do you know what Tough Mudder is? I'm too scared to do it. You're too scared. To I'm so- too scared. I'm going to get hurt. Well, well, well. I'm certainly too. I'm certainly too scared. I don't know how I will get over that. There's like some jumping part, which I'm certainly too short. But the concept of Tough Mudder is an amazing one. If you haven't, if you don't know what it is, Google it. The internet. It'll show you that 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 Tough Mudder is a race to benefit the Wounded Warrior Project, and it's a crazy obstacle course with all kinds of crazy electrocution. But there's there, one there fire and electrocution and high walls. But the one part of the race, there is a there is a half pipe, a vert, and the best athletes who are in the front can get up the vert on their own. Right. But if you watch, there's no chance that a lot of the people can get up on the vert. And because it's for the wounded warriors, you have people with one arm, one leg, all kinds of things. But people get up there and they wait and they stick their hand down to a complete stranger and they carry them up. It's beautiful. And it's a beautiful. It's unbelievable. Yep. It's unbelievable. So you have no aspirations to do anything but a marathon or any other things? I'd rather go back. I'll probably do another marathon. Um, my wife didn't know it, but I actually applied for London just because I got rejected. So we're not going to London. Um, I'd like to go back to middle distance. Not go back to, but concentrate on middle distance. I love half marathons. I love 5Ks. I love 10Ks. Why? The 5 and 10Ks, there is some real... Um, strategy to how you I, I mean the strategy for 26 miles as well but 5 and 10k you're looking at some of your competition you're figuring out how you're going to beat them coming down the coming down the last half mile or so um and there's a little bit more strategy involved particularly if you're running with somebody in that last half mile um 26 like i said 26 miles to me at least is is all about your inner self and survival how, it's about survival you know what i found about myself though at 13 miles in, in last year's marathon when my calves started spasming up, what I found out about my inner self was enlightening. And it held true at the end of the marathon, and I called my mother, and I said, because my mother, absolutely, good Jewish mother, did not want me running the marathon. She thought I was crazy and I was going to hurt myself, and she still remembers times when the pictures of people in the Olympics just kind of dropping dead at the end of, at the end of a uh, marathon. And I called her up, and she remembered why I ran it, which is because if you can finish a marathon, you can do anything. That's, I think that's true of anything. It's amazing. Yeah. I actually got a little bit of inspiration. People out there who know me know that I'm, if I made a promise to run the marathon, I'd run the marathon, so I'm not going to. But you're certainly inspired. And I, I think if there's nothing more that I hope people get from this show, it's inspiration. And from this, it's to do something, both to do something involved in sports, because that's important, to and and to live your life with meaning, but also to push yourself. Here's the, the beauty of running. The beauty, and I said it to somebody the other day walking the street. A lot of people turn to me and go, oh, you're a runner, that's great, I can't do it. And the only thing I say to anybody is you're absolutely wrong. The one thing that everybody can do, 
You may not do it fast. You may not do it long. But everybody can run in one shape, form, or another. Or roll. Or roll. Okay. You may not be able to throw a football. You may not be able to shoot a basketball real well. You may not be able to hit a golf ball real well. You may not be able to do a lot of other sports. You can run. Anybody can run. And anybody can create hurdles and goals for themselves within the context of what they're able to do. That's the beauty of running. That's amazing. Because at least you can walk. I mean, even if you can't make the end, you can walk the end of the marathon. You can do all that stuff. There are people that walk marathons every day. It's amazing. So It's unbelievable. So are there any plans? Um, we mentioned that the... Uh, New Row Runners Club has just merged um, with another running club, but have you? Uh, are there any other plans for the running organization to grow, to do all kinds of programming? Or we're, we're growing organically. We've got. We, we started in 2009 with six people who met at Pinebrook Tennis Center on a lark just to start running together, and um, as you mentioned before, about 200 people now. We're trying to organize that growth. You know, suddenly it wasn't just Stephen and I getting people together. We have a board now. We are a, a um, not-for-profit. Um, what we're trying to do is sustain our growth and sustain more than anything else the feeling that we have around the club. It's While there, we have a lot of competitive runners in the club, we want to make sure that everybody feels welcome and everybody feels the camaraderie. Everybody feels that it's not intimidating to come out to a, a weekend run and feel like you're just going to be left behind because everybody says that. So when you do a run, is there like groups of pacing based on time or it's just – or it's everyone together? Everybody starts out together and eventually everybody it, – it, it's kind of amazing. Near the end of a long run, everybody will kind of fan out to what they want their pace to be. But particularly at the beginning, slow runners, fast runners, medium runners all kind of mingle at the beginning for that first mile or two while everybody's warming up anyway and say hello and what's going on for the week and what are you doing next week and where are you traveling. And more than anything else, we've realized that 90% of, our, of the talking that goes on in runs about food. Where have you eaten and what are you making for dinner It sounds tonight? like a Jewish Shabbos meal. It, it's a Jewish you're, thing. You're eating and you're talking about eating. So you're running to exercise, maybe to lose some weight, and you're talking about food. That's exactly it. Um, we we, we want to maintain the, the feeling that we have around us. There are a lot of other running clubs where the, the focus is the racing and how many people they're placing up on a podium or the points they're getting in a New York Roadrunners um, club standing. That's not what we want. Well, we want that and we want the the – the elite runner to feel comfortable and that he has other people to run with at our runs. We want to make sure that everybody is out there. Everybody is feeling comfortable changing the shape. Uh, here's the tagline, changing the shape of the community one mile at a time. And, and do you think that you have been successful in actually changing, not the physical shape, but the camaraderie around the community at large, in addition to the 250 participants within the, um, within the club? I think that I, I'm, I'm going to answer in a different way. It won't be direct. I think the thing I'm proudest of, and Stephen and I have talked about this, is our individual accomplishments and people coming back to Stephen and I and saying thank you. And even though we didn't do it, we, they, they, they think we gave them the forum to do it. The truth is they just needed a forum to do it and their inner self let them do it or made them do it. But when somebody wasn't running a year ago and they're running a marathon, when somebody was um, 60 pounds heavier – and this was the reason that they got up every day and ran and then ran a 5K for the first time and then a 10K and then a 10-miler and a half marathon and they thank us, it's incredibly gratifying. And it's not me and it's not Stephen. We just, we just kind of open the doors and make a forum for everybody to rush in. Well, that's, I mean, that's an important thing in life also. I don't think you should, you should belittle the fact that the forums that we create for ourselves and for other people to succeed are very important. I, you know, the closest thing I get to that, I work at a university, but I also coach a basketball team. And to me, 
It's about making sure that the kids have the opportunity to learn, to grow, to be to, to be better basketball players. We want I I've I've always stood by the fact that the most fun thing in the world is winning. Right? You know, like when, when a basketball team is losing, there are fifteen guys on the team, and the fifteenth guy is always upset when you're losing, but when you win the championship, everybody jumps up and down like like maniacs. Right. So winning is fun, but at the same time, it, it's creating within that the framework to practice every day, to grow every day, to use the games to be to to act with with kindness and to lose gracefully and sometimes even harder to win gracefully. Not easy. It's it's not easy to win gracefully. And, and, I, and I played sports my whole life. I struggled with winning gracefully. I certainly struggled with losing gracefully more. But when you look back and as you get older and you look back and you say, look at what I've gotten from sports and look what I was able to give back to it, it becomes something that, that, that really is a life-changing experience. And we should all be thankful to those people who put out those opportunities for us to grow, both in sports but even outside of sports. That, that, and, and we should strive, by the way, to create opportunities for people to continue to grow and to live lives of meaning. I totally agree. And thank you. Well, thank you for, uh, for, certainly, for certainly continuing um, the New Rochelle uh, Runners Club. I hope that it's still around um, when I moved. How long have you lived in New, in New Rochelle? We moved to New Rochelle from Park Slope in 93 before Evan was born. Wow. So oh, somebody do the math real quick. 19 years. 19 years. 19 Same years. house? No, lived originally on Secord Road, and then we moved about a mile away. Right. So I like New Rochelle. I, I go to my in-laws in New Rochelle all the time. I think it's a great place. It's a great distance, far enough but close enough from Manhattan. It's why we chose it. Really? It. We use the city a lot. It was. I was also driving into work at that point, so I didn't want to go too far up. Um, we had looked at a couple of, of neighborhoods in the city. Just We just wanted to get you know get up to Westchester, and it's... No traffic, twenty five minutes to Midtown, or you take the train in thirty two. Yeah, and 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 I want to talk a little bit. You just touched on the city versus suburban life. Yeah. So I touched on that earlier. So you guys considered the city, but you decided to move right to the suburbs. We we lived in Park Slope um, before we moved. After we got married, we lived in Park Slope and loved the slope. Um, loved Brook back to Brooklyn. Uh, okay, obviously, you, know. you love. I wasn't going to say it. I was going to say <laughs> it's, Park Slope is in Brooklyn. If you don't like Park Slope, then 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 you have to have. First of all, you're. You you have to have your lineage checked if you don't like Brooklyn and you're Jewish. That's definitely true. It's not if you no. You have to have your lineage checked because there's somebody from Brooklyn Obviously. in your lineage. And then you have to find that relative so they can knock the sense back into you about how you should like Brooklyn. Correct. Um, but then we decided, we we looked at a couple of neighborhoods in New York City, and then we actually looked at a bunch of places in Westchester because my sister had already moved up to Westchester, my brother had moved up to Westchester, and um, looked at a couple of communities. Nothing struck us right. We actually looked at New Rochelle six months prior. Didn't. It, you know, it didn't feel right. And then we went back there. I can't remember the date. And it just felt right. It felt, it was the right mix of a bunch of things. It was the right uh, distance from the city. It was the right um, diverse community that we wanted. It was the right Jewish community that we wanted. Um, it had everything we kind of wanted except for good, you know, some good food that you can only get in Brooklyn. Well, that's, that, that's of course true. Yeah. Um, and it seems like we're doing an advertisement for New Rochelle now, but everybody should not move to New Rochelle right now because if you guys move there, then my house will be much more expensive when I end up there one day. I'm on the other side. It's okay. They move in. They they increase the oh, value of my house. They increase the value of your house. Okay, so you can pick sides. You can either go with the guy who runs marathons or the guy who hides behind the mic. One of the two. I don't know who you will choose. Um, I hope that you are enjoying the show. Again, you are listening to the stunt show here on the Nahum Siegel Network. We welcome your feedback um, at Daniel at NahumSiegel.com. We are here with uh, David Brott, who we mentioned um, is the co-founder, um, vice president, and chief root officer of the New World Runners Club, of New World Runners. And um, we've been talking about marathons, life, 
Uh, you don't want to talk about the Jets anymore. No, no, no. So actually, I, I was about to segue to the Jets. You're, you're reading my mind. There's just enough time left so that we don't really pain ourselves talking about the New York Jets. How painful is it? They may take the fun out of sports sometimes. They, God. I can't watch on Sundays anymore. They taught me how to lose gracefully. Well, I don't know what you grew up as, but I am a Jet fan. I'm a Met fan, which is good, you know, bad enough right there. Knicks and Rangers. Hasn't been exactly a great run. So the Rangers, I'm actually the least of those. I'm a hockey fan. I, I, I was always a basketball fan. The Knicks gave me a couple good years, but they came just close enough to disappoint at the end against the Spurs and the, you know, but, but I, but I grew up on the on the Knicks Bulls, the Knicks Heat, the Knicks Pacers. They were good teams for a long time. The Mets have absolutely killed me. I don't I don't know what baseball fan you are. They, they killed. Um, me. I was at the Carlos Beltran game. I'm a Yankee fan. I was at the Aaron Boone game, and that was awesome. It's easy to be Yankee fan. But the but the Jets. It. I grew up talking about the Jets. I grew up when they couldn't win a game, and when I used to literally pour, literally blood, sweat, and tears. So it was literally crying, yelling, and screaming. The car rides back. I give my father a lot of credit. It was like we'd yell at each other, and we'd. But they, it, it's just unbelievable. No matter how close they get to coming over the hump, they never get over the hump. And I thought we would have God on our side this year. Tebow? Yeah. Obviously, he has other things to do. Obvi- listen, obviously somebody doesn't want him playing for the Jets um, because they don't play him enough. I personally, uh, I'm sure you're going to disagree with this. I personally think they should play him. No, absolutely no way play him. Because? He's, he's not a quarterback. What is he? He's an athlete. And he, which one of those is Mark Sanchez? He's a poor quarterback. No, he's a he is a... GQ model that wears football pads. I may have just got myself in trouble. I assume that my phone's going to start buzzing with emails to DanielNachamSteel.com. How could you say that about Mark Sanchez? Tannenbaum and Ryan, or whoever made the trade for Tebow, killed Sanchez the minute they made the trade. And that's my opinion. I'm just a guy from New Rochelle. Well, well, he, I actually agree with that because I think he wasn't sixth per pick worthy. I think, I think, I think he was definitely good enough to play in the NFL. But I think once you trade up, right, it becomes. I mean. Wh- what, what I say about Mark Sanchez is that he's not a once-in-a-generation quarterback. He's a once-in-a-draft quarterback, meaning you can—or or, once-every-couple-of-years quarterback, and when you trade up to get to the sixth pick, right. now the expectations—this is a whole other life lesson thing I talk about. It's all about managing expectations. So now you gave away your past and future correct, for this guy, and it's unfair, and they haven't surrounded him with so much talent. I mean, it, it blows my mind that they say that they're going to run the ball, and they traded away over the last two years or let go the top— you know, offensive line in football. And Green has not proven to be what we thought he was going to be. Well, at least he holds on to the football. At least he holds on to the football. There was no fullback. But I, I certainly, you know, if the deeper side of the Jets, I've learned how to lose. Yeah. I've learned camaraderie with the fans and commiserating against the Jets. I, um, you know, with the Jets. It, 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 it's, it's amazing. My son still blames me for making him a Jets and Mets fan. And, and one of the hardest things, I've seen my son cry, obviously beyond when he was a two and three year old and he skinned his knee. He cried it. We went to the Indianapolis championship game and we went to the Pittsburgh championship game. And the crying at the end of those games, and he was 16 and 17 at the time or whatever it was, that hurt. Your dad's embarrassing you just a little bit. Don't worry. <laughs> we will make sure, uh, Evan, that uh, you'll be okay. I cried over sports all the time. I was actually, uh, I, I don't have so many. I have a lot of, for me, the Jets were an opportunity to hang out with my brothers and my father. We've had season tickets. My diapers were changed there. Um, I learned all the things that I'm not allowed to say on the radio um, at the Jet Games. But it's very hard when you are passionate and when you see something and you, and you literally put all your strength in it and then to be disappointed, especially when you don't have control. And that's and that's the tease about sports. What are you supposed to do? There's only so loud I can yell defense and then they can give up an 80-yard pass. You put your faith in something and they disappoint. There's a lesson there. There, there certainly is a lesson 
um, there. There's less than all the sports. But I think the Mets will come around um, before they decide to close shop because otherwise they're going to have to close shop. The who? The Mets? Yeah, the Mets. Mets are done. I, th- there's nothing there. I mean, I got nothing to watch. I did. So from the end of last year where the Rangers made a run um, and the Knicks kind of went weird. Okay, we had no Met, We had a half a Mets season and we actually thought we'd be, we'd be watching. And, no, you and, didn't. You didn't think that. I thought, no, no. I thought back in April there would be no season. I know no I just season. met you, but you seem much smarter than somebody who thought the Mets were going to be decent halfway through the year. Oh, no. Halfway through the year, you had to, you had to pick your head up and go, maybe they got something going here. They're not going to be in the playoffs, but if they get 80-something wins, at least you can kind of pick the paper up every morning and read what they did. And then everything. And then it became reading the paper and seeing what they did. Right. <laughs> that was... Exactly. And that's what we're doing with, on Monday mornings with the Jets now, because I can't even watch. But the Knicks are a good sign. It's weird. It's weird that they're good, and they certainly are playing... Good basketball. I mean, I was watching two nights ago on Tuesday night. I was watching two nights ago on Tuesday night, and J.R. Smith is playing defense, and they're coming together as a team. And by the way, it teaches you a lesson because I like to always bring it back. When they start playing as a team, all these NBA teams have talent. Some of them have more talent than others. But until you play together, you're never going to win. You'll win a game here. You'll win a game there. This person will score 50 points. The other team will have a bad day. But until you play together, you'll never win because it's impossible. It's physically impossible to do it for an entire season, especially for a playoff run in any sport. It's so cliche, but when you watch the on MSG and you watch the old Nick games from 69-70 or 73, even the stuff back from the 90s with Ewing and Starks, those teams played as a team. And then you can go back and they, you, you can watch some bad games and watch some bad teams. They're just they're five individuals out there and, and another seven waiting on the bench. Totally different atmosphere. So I was just watching two nights ago and they were talking about on, on the NBA channel, they have like these... Uh, on NBA TV, they have like these round table discussions with former players. Right. And they were talking about this topic because they, they were talking about Michael Jordan and what sets him apart. And what set him apart was that he was willing to make that pass. He did take the shots and he did make the shots, but he was willing to make that pass. And if you and it, and if you take that as the lesson that if you play together, you'll win. Yes, they had the best teams, but until you play together, you won't win the championship. You'll win a lot of games, you're not gonna win championships. I think Michael Jordan is a lesson that the other the other side of that coin is Mark Sanchez right now. People believed in Michael Jordan. People on his team, the other four players on the court, believed that he was going to do the right thing or hit the shot. There was a, a, a supernatural belief he was going to do it. And, and Rafi Halpert, who coaches the, uh, the, the high school basketball team that I coach with him, I'm the assistant coach, he always says that you have to do everything together. And that's right. the point you're touching upon. Yep. Even if you're doing the wrong thing, by the way, so long do as it. people are doing the wrong thing together, it won't become you may win games. And also, to listen to the coaches, just a plug for me, to le- – if they're the ones that are telling you what to do, you just have to do it together. Right. And so teamwork becomes the prime, unless it's golf. But then you see in golf, you watch like the Ryder Cup, and you see and you see all kinds of 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 of, of you you saw a golf team that was playing great as individuals in the beginning, right. and then all of a sudden it just didn't work out in the end. And 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 yet yeah, it's, it's it's as close to an individual sport as you're going to get that in tennis probably. But, I think golf is even more of an individual sport. Because at least, at tennis, you can always say the person across the net from you caused you to play bad or played that much better than you. Or caused you to win. Or caused you to win. Even even running, the guy next to you maybe not had a great day or maybe slower or however he's pacing himself. But golf is really, it's just you. I mean, I play a lot. It's just you. That's what kills me about golf. First of all, it's consist- it teaches you a lesson in consistency. You hit one drive straight down the fairway. The next one hooks to the right. The next one hooks to the left. So it's frustrating. But it's very golf is very humbling. That's to me the word. The word is... You can go out and you can play with somebody who's great at everything. You can go out and you can play with somebody who got a 1600 on their SATs and who's curing cancer. Right. Golf is going to be something that, that if, if running is something that everybody can do, 
then golf certainly um, is something that humbles people and brings them together. Golf, le- golf lesson is you can never, <laughs> cliche, never take your eye off the ball. You can't not concentrate to use a double negative in golf. The minute you don't concentrate and you're just going through the paces, things start going all over the place. And that in life, same thing in business every day. If I'm not concentrating on what I'm doing every day, I'm getting nowhere. Amazing. David, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, this was wonderful. I hope that you know I'll get to come to New Rochelle, run a little bit. I expect to see you there. I, I, I won't expect you in the middle of the winter in 10 degrees, but come April, after Pesach, I expect you up there on a Sunday morning running four or five miles. I will do my best. So it's that amazing time of the month now. We are going to play country music. This month's song is A Few Questions by Clay Walker. As I, the request I make every month is if you can, stop what you're doing, pause for three minutes and 47 seconds, take it all in, and I'll react afterwards. How in this world can we put a man on the moon And still have a need for a place like St. Jude's And why is one man born in a place where all they know is war And a guy like me has always been free And how can two people who built a loving home Try for years And never have a child of their own When somewhere out there tonight There's a baby no one's holding tight In need of love To me that don't add up But I wasn't there the day you filled up the ocean I didn't get to see you hang the stars in the sky So I don't mean to second guess you Or criticize what I don't understand and These are just a few questions I have Why did my cousin have to die in that crash? A good kid, only 17, I still wonder about that It seems unfair to me Some get the chance to chase their dreams And some don't But what do I know? I wasn't there the day you filled up the oceans I didn't get to see you hang the stars in the sky So I don't mean to second guess you Or criticize what I don't understand These are just a few questions I have Why do I feel like you're hearing these prayers of mine When so many ought to be 
ahead of me in line When you look down on me Can you see the good through all the bad These are just a few questions I have That was a few questions by Clay Walker. So why did I choose that song for tonight's show? I think if we are honest with ourselves, we all ask questions of God. Some are justified and some are not. And I think we have every right to. The challenge for us is not letting the questions take over our lives and to maintain our faith. Questioning can be good and healthy, so long as we still believe in our Father in Heaven. On our first show just two months ago, we discussed unanswered prayers. I mentioned that I don't believe in unanswered prayers. I just believe that the answer is sometimes no. For me, there is no such thing as an unheard question by God Almighty or, an unans- or a bad question. We need to realize that sometimes things just don't make sense. As my mother always said, life isn't fair. We can believe that, but we can't let that belief take over our lives. If life's not fair, it's our jobs to make it as fair as possible, to live lives of meaning, help our neighbors. Like I mentioned before, I was fortunate enough to have been barely di- directly affected by Superstorm Sandy. But I did see firsthand the destruction and damage it caused. And I listened to people question. And I even questioned. But I was also inspired. And I tried to inspire. I saw what people did to volunteer. I went out and I saw the destruction. And therefore, I gained something good from the superstorm. And to me, that's what our lives are all about. That's what life's all about. And that's what Judaism's all about. Building a relationship with God through questioning and through inspiring and living lives of meaning. So, that was my pitch for tonight. You were just listening to the stunt show on the Nachum Seal Network. I'm Daniel Gordon, and thank you for making us part of your evening, week, and month. Coming up next, it's the Thursday Night Extravaganza with Nachum Siegel. Join Nachum tomorrow morning from 6 to 9 a.m. as he hosts JM in the AM, live here on the all-new NachumSiegel.com and on 91.1 FM. Make sure to tune in as he is joined by Malcolm Honline for his weekly update, and don't miss this Saturday night at 9 p.m. for Saturday Night Siegel, hosted by Avrami Finkelstein. Live here on the stream, as well as at NachumSiegel.com. This show will be rebroadcast Sunday morning at 9 a.m. on the all-new Nachum Siegel Network here at NachumSiegel.com. Tune in next week at this time for the next edition of The Stunt Show with Gorf, Jordan B. Gorfinkel. And at the beginning of next month, when you pay your bills and check the batteries in your smoke and carbon monoxide detectors, remember to tune in to me on The Stunt Show four weeks from tonight at 6 p.m. Thank you, Avrami. I know you're not going to Baltimore, back to Baltimore right now, but when you do... Have a safe trip back. I did the drive Monday night, and I did the drive yesterday morning. I would love to say that it was lovely, but it was kind of boring. Thank you to Michael Brott. I'm sorry, to David Brott um, for being my guest here tonight and for all that you do. Keep on running and keep on inspiring. In case you forgot, tonight's country song was a few questions by Clay Walker. Lastly, and this is my most sincere plug of the night, I welcome your honest feedback and comments at danielnachamsegel.com. I hope you have gained something from this hour, and I hope that this show will gain its inspiration and contact from you, the listeners. In the words of the late, great Jimmy Valvano, there are three things we should all do every day. Number one is laugh. Number two is think. And number three is have your emotions move to tears. It could be happiness or joy. But think about it. If you laugh, you think, and you cry, that's a full day. That's a heck of a day. You, don't, you do that seven days a week, you're going to have something special. That's how I try to live my life, 
And I hope that this hour has been as special for you as it's been for me. Coming up next is the Thursday Night Extravaganza with Nachum Siegel. See you next month. Goodbye.